Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. What does HLH stand for? What does HLH stand for? Yeah, let's start with that. such a terrible name. So it stands for hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Wow. And you know, you're not going to do well, are you? Trying to spread the word about a condition with such a dreadful name. So HLH is what most people call it. And the trouble is, as well as it having a bad name, there are also multiple pseudonyms, really. Okay. So it's been called other things over the years. And rheumatologists, so I'm a rheumatologist, historically have always called it macrophage activation syndrome. But I think, in essence, that's the same thing. And I would encourage us all to kind of think of these things as a group of conditions. The end inflammatory immune-driven dysfunction is pretty much the same, we think, irrespective of the driver. But historically, hematologists have called it HLH and rheumatologists macrophage activation syndrome. Because you see it written like that a lot, don't yeah. you? HLH slash, slash MAS. MAS. Yeah, okay. And I think there are definitely still splitters. So okay. there are still people who feel that we should be in our own worlds looking at just our own patients. And that strikes me as bonkers. I mean, it, from the end of the bed on intensive care, the patient looks the same. Yeah. The prognosis is not the same. So it may well not be an identical condition, but there's so much overlap that we have to learn by sharing rather than separate ourselves off. And am I right in thinking there's primary HLH and secondary? Yes. So MAS, for instance, is, is an example of secondary. So primary is a, a genetic condition, usually presents in childhood, though there are cases of people in, as old as in their 70s diagnosed with primary genetic HLH. It's astounding they've got that far in life and survived because most people present as infants and need bone marrow transplants to survive. So that's primary HLH, which is rare. And secondary HLH implies that there isn't a primary genetic problem, though I think there probably is a genetic risk. Uh, and then it's like these cancer hypotheses with multiple hits. So you have a, maybe a genetic risk, uh, and then something else happens. And then you get a hyperinflammatory HLH response. So in secondary HLH, um, that's when you'll mostly see it, is in the, the most common cause in, in Britain would be a lymphoproliferative disorder, of which lymphoma would be the most common. But we also say worldwide, the most common trigger is infection. Confusing the infection is tricky because if you have primary HLH, you may then have an infection that then triggers the presentation of your primary HLH. But you might just have an infection with no identifiable genetic abnormality as the driver of HLH. And then rheumatological conditions, which is why I got involved, um, cause HLH or MAS. Am I right in thinking it's quite difficult to recognise HLH and how do you then diagnose it? Yeah, so I think that it isn't difficult when you start to look for it. So, you know, we were just saying that we're seeing more and more. It was always there. It's just that we've got better at diagnosing it. And as many things in medicine, it's about pattern recognition, I think. And I think it's easy because it's got a dreadful name to get caught up in sort of the, that it's complicated. I actually don't think it is that complicated. It's hard to treat. But what you're looking for, really, the, the clinical feature is fever. It's persistent fever. Now, of course, we give antipyretics all the time. So sometimes the fever itself is hidden by paracetamol, NSAIDs, whatever, in which case you may just see persistent tachycardia. But anyway, so fever is the clinical hallmark. And left untreated, these patients will almost all end up with multi-organ failure on intensive care with a very high risk of dying. So an ill febrile patient. And then it's about 
recognising the blood abnormalities. So the key test is ferritin. So the higher the ferritin, really, the more likely that you have HLH. Not the only cause. In children, if you have a ferritin of more than 10,000, it's pretty much HLH until proven otherwise. In adults, that's not the case. So if you have a massive paracetamol overdose, for instance, your ferritin can be very high. If you had multiple blood transfusions because you've got a haemoglobinopathy, your ferritin might be very high. But a very high ferritin in a sick multi-organ failure patient, you should be thinking about HLH before you, really pretty much before you think about anything else. So the ferritin very high is helpful, but then there are other things that go with it. So hematology, so cytopenias, you, you re, it's very, very unusual. In fact, you can't really diagnose it without some degree of cytopenia, but the cytopenia can be quite mild. So in rheumatological practice, we often know our patients before they get HLH, different to you, because they might present, a lymphoma patient may present with their HLH at first visit. So we'll be watching a patient in the community with adult onset stills disease or systemic JIA. These are the main rheumatological drivers. And their bloods are just going the wrong way a little. So what we might see is that they have an appropriate high platelet count because they have an inflammatory condition. And then their CRP continues to rise, but then their platelets start to fall. And they might only fall just below normal, but that's a sign that they are beginning on an MASHLH-like path, and we can intervene to stop them developing the full-blown syndrome. So thrombocytopenia is common. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen HLH without an abnormally low platelet count. But the more unwell they get, you'll get three-line cytopenias often. So high ferritin, low blood count, and then the other thing that's useful, is pretty much the only time I use an ESR these days, is that you have this paradoxical split where the CRP continues to rise, but the ESR starts to fall. And that's unusual because most inflammatory conditions, you get CRP rise and an ESR rise. So you get this fall of the ESR with the rising CRP. And then the other thing that's helpful is the ALT. So they almost always have a transaminitis. And then if you look at their clotting, they have a falling fibrinogen. The last test, which isn't some, one that you might necessarily request in a sick patient, is that their triglycerides go up. So early on when I started looking after patients with HLH, I remember being called by the lab because they couldn't actually process a patient's sample because it was so lipemic. So you can get such high triglyceride counts that the samples become cloudy, the serum looks cloudy. So high ferritin, high triglycerides, high liver enzymes, and then falling counts and, uh, and falling fibrinogen. So that pattern is HLH until proven otherwise. And it's pretty hard to explain that combination of abnormal blood tests any other way. And so at that point, would the team refer on to you as a specialist for you to review the case? And... Yeah, so often here we have an HLH MDT. So we have haematologists, rheumatologists, infectious diseases, intensivists, and then sometimes cardiology, renal. All of us particular individuals, sometimes more than, um, more than one rheumatologist, more than one haematologist, are interested in HLH. And it's got to be a team sport because the big question in HLH, all right, you've made the diagnosis of HLH, but actually that's not really the answer. The answer is what's driving it. And you won't, a patient won't survive, probably, if you don't find what the driver is because you can try and cap the HLH, but it'll just keep coming back. So, um, I mean, I don't know the patients that haven't been referred to me, but on the whole, I think I see the vast majority of patients and they're discussed at our local MDT and also I run a, a national organisation where we discuss complex cases too. And I suppose for patients that we'd see yeah. with lymphoma that are diagnosed yeah. and that might have HLH, yeah. um, 
that present in a, in a very similar way. So high fevers yes. and, you know, high liver counts and things like that. And one of the big things we would normally do to treat newly diagnosed lymphoma patients would be give steroids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm right in thinking that that would be a risk at masking a HLH. No, it's the other way around. So uh, steroids are a very good treatment for HLH. My fear is the opposite to that. So if you know that someone's got lymphoma and then they get HLH, it tells you that their lymphomas probably need some treatment and that they will probably need parallel treatment for HLH too. But quite a lot of the treatments that we use are part of the chemo regimen that you're likely to prescribe. So it's likely that you'll need something additional, but sort of hiding it that way around doesn't matter. The other way around does matter. So if we have a patient who presents with HLH, what you want to try and do is find out what the driver is before you give very high dose steroids because I mess up your diagnosis. So if we manage the HLH with super high doses of steroids and you haven't had biopsies to look for lymphoma, then you might mask the lymphoma. So it's that way around. So it's normally finding out what's the key driver yes. before giving any treatment? Well, it depends how unwell they yeah. are. Um, so it is a brave person not to start something. And we've had cases where we've given steroid and still found the lymphoma. So you've got to save the patient first before you find the diagnosis. I mean, there's no point in making diagnosis if they're not alive. But ideally what you do is investigate for the driver while you start treatment that minimises the risk of masking it. So we use this drug anakinra a lot. You'll have seen that the use of anakinra in this hospital has gone up a lot. And there's increasing experience to support the idea that anakinra is a good first-line treatment in a patient where you're chasing the diagnosis down. Uh, you know, I have still often used it with steroid, but I've used anakinra to help me limit the amount of steroid while we take out the lymph node, while we do the spleen biopsy, while we wait for the bone marrow, etc. Does it take a long time to get a diagnosis back? Depends what we're doing, um, and it, it depends. It can, and it can require multiple iterations of repeat PET scan, repeat biopsy, and so on. And in some people, we've never found the driver never been certain of the driver and we had we have had people survive despite that which probably means they have a rheumatological disease that didn't sort of manifest until this presentation and I'm keeping a lid on the rheumatological disease with the management of the HLH if that makes sense but yes it can take a, a long time and several of our patients have, have been here for many many months you know in the last few years so and sometimes it's on the second or third go round of tissue that you find the diagnosis. And you said it was something that can lead to multi-organ failure. I mean, what's the sort of progression? Do you normally see diagnoses happening early enough, or are they often quite late, or is it just... Like... Again, of course, you don't know what you don't know, do you? Mm. But I th And I think that um, we are picking it up earlier in institutions like this because we recognise the pattern now. But I don't mean that in a smug way at all. It's just that you get better at making diagnoses that you look for. We know that we miss a lot, though. Nationally, we miss a lot. And I, as I go on my merry way teaching people about HLH, it's really interesting that I, I can see people have kind of light bulb moments in the audience when they think, oh, I was a med reg and I looked after that patient with fever and multi-organ failure and we never quite got to the bottom of it. I think this is what that was. So it'll be a sort of mystery patient, you know, PUO, high fevers. And then in terms, I think you also asked about the way in which they deteriorate. So it's often inotrope requiring 
Um, so blood pressure problems, re then respiratory and renal happen, so they often need renal replacement, but it's later sometimes than the inotropes for blood pressure. So it's very much that cytokine-driven, very high fever, dropping in blood pressure, tachycardia. And lots of our patients are really young, so they kind of compensate until they collapse in a heap. So I have had patients on ECMO and a filter and a ventilator walk out of hospital. Do we treat it differently depending on what's the driving force? So in rheumatology, yeah. is there a different treatment than we'd use in haematology, for example? So historically, absolutely, yes. They were like, never the twain shall meet. You know, this is our pathway. This is how we diagnose it. And this is what we use. And this is what you how you diagnose it. This is what you use. So anakinra, I suppose, is the big drug which rheumatologists have used for many years, which haematologists are coming around to the concept of. And, you know, actually with very open minds and, and keenness, I think, because the alternative is etoposide, which clearly carries a fairly high risk of neutropenia, which is complicated when you've got somebody with a fee, you know, sepsis-like process, and then they also have neutropenic sepsis. And rheumatologists are, in my view, over scared about using a topicide. So we have to learn, it comes back to that thing about multi-specialty, multidisciplinary learning. We have to learn how to use each other's tools and we need each other's advice. Uh, so even though I do kind of masses of HLH, I would never prescribe a topicide without support from haematologists. And I advise haematologists on how to use the drugs that I use all the time. So historically, we would use much more, even the steroid we use is different. Right, because you would use DEX a lot because of CNS involvement in of the lymphomas in HLH, whereas we use methylprednisolone a lot. Each has advantages and disadvantages, I think. Because many of my patients survive proportionally, I'm always really worried about steroid-related side effects because people go on to have avascular necrosis or diabetes or all sorts of other things. Whereas historically, survival in haematological practice with lymphoma and HLH has, meant, has been so poor that you haven't really had to worry about long-term side effects, if that doesn't sound too terrible. So anyway, I think we are maybe more conscious about steroid sparing. Is basically destruction of the lymphocytes required to sort of turn it around? So, of course, steroids are a great destroyer of lymphocytes, hence all the problems with infections related to steroids. Uh, re yeah, related to chronic steroid use. We certainly don't use topside in all of our patients or any form of chemo. But we have the beauty, as I was saying to you before, of disease chronicity. So, they, so some, many of our patients are less ill than your patients because we diagnose it earlier. We know our patients well on the whole before they present with MAS or HLH, so we can nip it in the bud. And under those circumstances, sometimes just steroids, people use steroids, IVIG, cyclosporin, sometimes those things are enough. And then we also use biologics as well as anakinra. We also use this drug tocilizumab, which is all the rage at the moment. Yes. Um, <laughs> and of course, you use that in CRS. So we use tocilizumab in adult-onset Stills disease and systemic JIA, which are the main, as I said, rheumatological drivers of HLH. So definitely, we don't use chemo in all of our patients. I feel like we see more HLH on the wards now, and that our CAR T cell grief kind of patient an and increase post... in CAR T cell, and I guess COVID as well. It, hence why this. Uh, recording yeah. is a great timing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so CAR T cell definitely causes yeah. HLH. So obviously it causes CRS, and some of those patients will go on to develop HLH. 
And uh, COVID definitely causes HLH too. So we've had four or five cases of HLH due to COVID here in the last few months. And I think that my impression from talking nationally to other colleagues is that your chance of getting COVID-related HLH is increased if you've got another risk for HLH. So hematology patients, rheumatology patients, already it's a bit like that multi-hit hypothesis we were talking about for cancer. I think it increases your risk. Do you think we're getting better, or the haematologists are getting better at recognising? Definitely, we all are. And we all keep learning. You know, every patient I see is a bit different. Every patient we see, we look back on and think, mm, could we have done this earlier, you know, differently, better? And that's the, they're such complicated patients that, you know, we must use each one as a learning exercise. I definitely think people get better at recognising it. And I'll give you an example. So we have referrals up from DGHs with possible HLH diagnosis. And, after, you know, I won't hear from the district general ever before. They'll refer one patient and then suddenly we'll get three a year from them. And it's not because it wasn't there before. It's that they're diagnosing it now. And that's great because we know that the sooner we diagnose it, the better the outcome. If you've got somebody in multi-organ failure or an ITU, the survival is, is hugely reduced by that point. And then for them to have to go through, you know, PET scans and multiple biopsies and all the toxic drugs that we have to give, you can see mortality is up to kind of 80% in that cohort. So we want to diagnose earlier, and I'm sure that our, you know, our numbers will get better as we get better at doing that. How, how rare a disease is it? Wow. I mean, for primary... <laughs> <laughs> I mean okay. considering we don't know how much there is out there. Anyway, yeah. But yeah, so but... I mean, you know, we, we probably make confident HLH diagnoses at UCLH now between 15 and 20 a year. Probably with COVID, that's, we'll, we'll do more than that in this year. Uh, I'm sure we still miss some too. Nationally, there's a, a move from Public Health England. Actually, they've just been disbanded whoever Public Health England now is, poor people, um, <laughs> there's a move from them to say, hang on, this is a condition with a really high mortality and we don't even have good instance prevalence data. So we're trying, I'm involved in a project to try and work out the answer to that question. When but, you said 15 a year, was that secondary or secondary and primary? Uh, sorry, so I'm talking about adult practice okay. um, and that is largely secondary. Sure. So primary is one per several hundred thousand or million. I mean, it's very it's okay. rare. Are there many clinical trials happening or has that been paused because of COVID or helped because of COVID? Yeah, so I think the political pressure to look at hyperinflammation. So co just, just to go back to COVID, I'll come back to that question, but just to clarify something about COVID first, most ill patients with multi-organ failure with COVID don't have HLH. Most of them have a hyperinflammatory syndrome that seems particular to COVID-19 that we don't understand, that has not yet been well-defined, really, that I'm trying to help among, with, with colleagues to define. But most of those patients don't have HLH. However, it is clearly a potent cause of HLH as well. And because COVID is just such a worldwide catastrophe, there is a huge political pressure and real medical need to have proper clinical trials in hyperinflammation because we think that's what's causing us a proportion of the deaths from COVID-19. So there are trials of immune modulation in COVID-19. There aren't trials of immune modulation in HLH specifically driven by COVID. And trials in HLH have always been a nightmare because it's cross-specialty working, patients on intensive care, 
the current regimens are complicated and multi-drug. You know, it's not like you give drug A and you compare it to drug B. But still, that is my dream, actually, is to have proper clinical trial data about the role of anakinra, etoposide, tocilizumab, all these other drugs in HLH. There is, however, one trial which I think may have completed, although it did just about hit, the end of completion was just about as COVID started. It's a trial called the PROVIDE trial. And this is a really interesting concept, which is that we think that a proportion of patients, maybe about 5%, or patients with bacterial sepsis, develop another name for HLH, something called macrophage activation-like syndrome. And it's basically the HLH of sepsis. So the idea is that if you're going to die of sepsis, you're more likely to die if the host response is either inappropriately high, so a kind of HLH-like thing, or inappropriately low, so a sort of hypo response. So PROVIDE was picking out patients with sepsis who had features of HLH, and, give, and one arm was to give them anakinra. Um, and I think that will be really, really interesting data, because that will be the first randomized control trial specifically asking the question about whether anakinra helps in non-rheumatological sort of hyperinflammation. In rheumatological practice, there's pretty good data from systemic JIA trials about the role of anakinra and tocilizumab, um, but not specifically in HLH, really. But it begs to be done, and it needs to be done, because we're doing things that are not high-quality evidence-based. And we often do it because there's a desperate situation. If we did nothing, the patient would inevitably die. But that shouldn't put us off aiming for the gold standard of randomized controlled trials. And part of the reason that I've set up this national network with a, a colleague from Sheffield is to do exactly that. But we need everybody on board, you see. We need all the different specialties to agree to recruit patients where the driver is less of the question. We've done a podcast with Marie Scully. Oh yeah, TTP. It's exactly. So I spoke small to small numbers of patients, and yeah. then but you know it's only collaboration that allows you to kind of really and be she, able to do I mean, this high quality evidence. Amazing model of looking at how to yeah. do it, isn't it? So I've spoken to her okay. uh, <laughs> because that's the sort of thing that we want to to do. The difference with HLH is there isn't a single diagnostic test, and the patients often sit with different. At least with TTP, it's all haematology. Yeah. Yeah. So here, in this situation, we need to really get HIV doctors, TB doctors, other ID doctors, haematology, rheumatology, and intensivists all to kind of accept the principle that we would work together on one trial. But I think there's a real political desire, you know, move, change, that people now want to do that. Would you be looking at the COVID studies to sort of say these hyperinflammatory patients, what works for them, and then, you know, using that to help inform what you'll do with HLH, or is it just too different a yeah, condition? Yeah, absolutely, to... you should, and uh, we will, and in fact, tomorrow, we're publishing a paper from the UCLH cohort looking at hyperinflammation in COVID. So we've got 269 patients, some from UCLH, some from Newcastle Trust, and we're trying to define this hyperinflamed phenotype of COVID. We've got a thousand patients for the next look at to try and define the subtypes of hyperinflammation. And then you know, as well as I do, that there are a zillion clinical trial, interventional clinical trials. The issue for me about those is not all patients with COVID are hyperinflamed. 
So if you have a negative trial, so you'll have heard, in, you know, there was the positive dexamethasone trial for recovery. Interestingly, it seems that there was a danger signal in the early cohort and a survival signal in the sicker patients. And that might support the idea that dexamethasone is important in hyperinflammation, but not early on when you're trying to fight a virus or you're frail. It's a different presentation. So there's that story. Then the Covactor, which was tocilizumab trial, was negative. So there was no survival benefit. But for me, the issue with all of these studies is which group are you treating? Because, you know, I'm sure you, we were, I was redeployed to a, you know, a COVID ward. They are not all the same. I mean, there are clear subgroups, clinical subgroups. And I think the ideal trial is to use immune modulation in those who demonstrate clear hyperinflammation. And we know from negative sepsis trials historically that if you treat all patients with a syndrome where there is a spectrum, if you treat them all the same, you get a negative trial. And what you have to do is be clever and pull out the, sub, the subgroups or be huge like recovery was. So recovery was mega numbers, mm. you know, really impressive British science and medicine success, wasn't it, to do that? So you either have to be absolutely huge where, where you kind of get the subtypes by virtue of treating enough people or you have to be beautifully designed. We always ask this when we talk about how we can bring the information from the podcast back to the wards. Have you got any advice or top tips for junior doctors and for the nursing staff caring for patients when they've got HLH? I think that the main thing is to ask yourself the question. That is the way to start having more wins than losses, I think. So when we have succeeded, as in the patient has survived and gone home, is when we've said to ourselves, is this HLH? Is this HLH? That is the key question. And often it may not be, but it is much better to ask the question and then you can treat early. And then it's just to phone a friend. You know, we really should be discussing these patients frequently. Uh, there's an MDT here, but I'm always on the end of a phone and it's not just me, there's lots of us, but it's to ask yourself the question, does this sick patient have HLH? That is all you need to do to start with. All the detail can fall into place, but it's asking that question that's key.